Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Fran Mayer, the founder and CEO of BabyQuip. Founded in 2016, BabyQuip is the world's leading baby care rental service. Delivering clean, quality baby gear items from car seats to strollers and more to traveling families throughout the U.S. and Canada. In this episode, Fran shares with us her experience as a serial entrepreneur, from building and selling Match.com in the late 90s to raising $10 million to transform Trustee from a nonprofit organization into the leading privacy compliance provider now known as TrustArc. We talk about her recent appearance on Shark Tank with her son and CTO Joe, and how being an early adopter of Airbnb inspired her to lead BabyQuip. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Fran, you have such an incredible background and are a true what they call a serial entrepreneur. I'm excited to dive in and hear your story. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lee, thank you for, for inviting me. I'm excited to do this. Talk with you. Awesome. So before we dive into how you built, you know, Match.com and BabyQuip, let's start with young Fran as a kid. Where are you from and what was childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I spend time there even now. And it's a wonderful, um, very much a town that has a lot of focus on the creative. And I think that is part of my background is kind of thinking outside the box. So when you're in a town that's so multi-ethnic and focuses a lot on creative expression, be it sculpture or painting or even food, uh, I think that's that's important. My parents were born in late 30s, early 40s, so kind of boomer-like parents, a little bit older than that, very much go-go. Neither of them spoke English as their first language. My mom spoke Spanish, my dad spoke Italian. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't pick up either of those languages. Oh no, I was just I gonna know. say, you know three languages? That's yeah, that'd be nice, huh? <laughs> uh, I would say that my mom and dad both had some pretty big influences. My mom had been an airline stewardess when she was young. And so I think I, I uh, liked her adventure. Mm -hmm. and wanting to travel and go out and do things because to leave New Mexico and go become an airline stewardess in the early 60s was kind of uh, glamorous and dramatic. Yeah. yeah. My, my dad uh, was a business guy and with a lot of focus on sales. And so I remember riding in the car with him. He'd tell me about how he closed this deal or that deal. Yeah. So I kind of got into that. And, uh, you know, pretty normal in, yeah. in a lot of ways. I was the oldest, so. Out of how many siblings? siblings? Uh, my mom and dad had four together. And then after they divorced, my dad had a couple of others, so. So you were really the pioneer sibling. Yeah, I, I wish I was more of a role model. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> what um, did you want to be when you were a kid? You had such great examples from your parents living such cool, you know, fun and exciting lifestyles. It seems with their careers, were you swayed to want to, you know, work in the airline industry or the business industry? Or, you know, did you want to be know, an entrepreneur? I kind of thought I was going to be a lawyer for a long time because, you know, kids you sometimes don't even know really what your possibilities are. Fortunately, I worked at a law firm when I was in high school, and I realized I didn't really want to do that. They were, they were always writing and behind a desk, and they weren't doing stuff. So I think I was fairly motivated to do business, but I didn't really know what. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up 
going to Stanford undergrad and arrived on the campus in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that just was really transformational, as, as you can imagine. And it's funny because I got into like Princeton and Wellesley and Stanford, and I went to some of the parties for each of those schools, and the Stanford party was the most fun. So that's <laughs> So you chose it for the parties. <laughs> I chose it for the parties. Now, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but they were a little bit more generous with the financial aid, actually. And I think coming from New Mexico, going to California seemed like something a little bit more, uh, less of a reach than going all the way to New Jersey. Yeah. And so you mentioned that it was transformational. In what ways was your experience at that school transformational? Well, I mean, I came from a small town and then you arrive at Stanford and all the technology that even then was going on. Yeah. And the freedom, frankly, in high school, I wasn't particularly challenged. You know, and I, I arrive on this campus and I'm around all these other kids who have traveled and done so many other things and obviously had much better um, high school educations. That was kind of intimidating, but I really didn't let it bother me. And just the whole focus on, I'd say, work hard, play hard mm-hmm. was really something that that worked well with me. And I was an English major at first. and because I love to read, and think that's one reason why I ended up at Stanford. But I also, um, I ended up getting a degree in public policy, but that was really a combination of political science and economics, a little bit of organizational theory. So I could see then I was already starting to think about more business applications, entrepreneurial applications. And I started my first company when I was at Stanford. I, I put a group of students together and we bid on running one of the, well, the yogurt shop on campus. Okay. So back in 1983, I was selling yogurt and pizzas and put together the team and managed the team and set schedules and cut up a lot of strawberries. that's awesome was it around that time do you think that you were like wow being an entrepreneur is really something I love doing or something I want to pursue you know I'm not sure I I externally said that but I was doing it Uh uh-huh you know and what I did like and what I still like and I think made a lot of difference was um the control of your your schedule the ability to more importantly the ability to see your vision through and when I and then I ended up going to Stanford Business School after working in consulting. I went to Stanford Business School very much focused on doing marketing, not necessarily again being an entrepreneur. Mm. So it's funny I didn't even take some of the entrepreneurial classes at Stanford Business School because <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about it. And um, between Stanford and Business School, I worked as a management consultant, and in the context of doing that. I learned about brand management, which I thought was important because the whole idea of brand management is that the people in charge of the brand, it's not just the advertising or the packaging, but it's everything. That's pricing, distribution, sales, pack, the whole, the whole enchilada. And I really liked that idea. And high-tech marketing really wasn't doing it that way. And even now, it's oftentimes very much siloed. Mm-hmm. So I went to business school very focused on on marketing and pursuing a, uh, a, a job with a consumer products company, which I, I got with Clorox. Great. So how was your experience at Clorox? Yeah, Clorox was a great place to get your postgraduate degree in, in marketing. Um, learned about things like how to do a creative brief, how to do big promotions with newspapers and magazines, how to evaluate whether or not your sales or or your advertising or efforts make a difference. A little bit of direct marketing and, you know, it was fun to do commercials and things like that, good market research. So it was very much an applied marketing experience for a few years. And, and I really liked that. And at the time, things were starting to change in terms of, of more ways to do more direct marketing to people. Uh, of course, this is still pre-internet. Yeah. 
And while I was at Clorox, I had uh, my two sons. So good place to be when you're pregnant. I have a couple of kids. And there was a great network of colleagues, also other moms. And, and it was really great. Yeah. Great. And so what happened after Clorox? Where did you end up going from there? And when? why did you end up leaving? Yes, I left Clorox in 1993. At the time, I was in a division that was sold, although I was seven months pregnant when I lost that job. Oh, and yeah. that was a bit painful. Mm-hmm. It, it, it turned out okay. I took a job with AAA here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. one of the clubs. And uh, that was an interesting experience. I think I was only there for a year, but it was pretty good because it was very direct marketing focus. Mm-hmm. So at Clorox, we didn't really do a lot of direct mail. But at AAA, and I was in charge of membership marketing, and let me tell you, member, membership is important. And yeah, I, the, the power of that AAA membership brand was really clear to me. Mm-hmm. And I would say there were two, two or three things that, that were important there. One is we introduced a new product. It was called AAA Plus. It was a longer tow. Mm-hmm. I was able to convince everybody that let's package some other things that people would value. We'd be able to price it higher. Uh-huh. which was successful. But that was pretty much my first tech product I ever managed because it wasn't really a real, you know, it, it wasn't a bag of charcoal or yeah. a, a gallon of bleach, right? It was more of a, a virtual benefit, right? Yeah. So that was the first time I really went through a brand new products requirement, technical implementation, and that was important. I also did a deal with a company called AirTouch, which was an early cellular provider. So that if you got the phone through AAA, there'd be a button. I mean, remember, this is early 90s. We're yeah. talking kind of big phones yeah. that, that you could press a button and get your AAA. And I'd say that was probably my first business development deal that I ever really did. Cool. And both those things were, were big. And then the third thing, was um and all this when i had a newborn it was in, in one year oh my gosh um, I, it's the first time i saw the internet wow and i had been reading this book called the one-to-one marketing or something like that mm-hmm. and it was about using text and audio text <laughs> and then i see the internet which you know immediately i saw oh my god i mean honestly this is going to change everything yeah and i knew it as soon as I saw it. And um, at that point, I really knew I had to be be part of it. Yeah. I mean, so how? What did you do from there? You're like, here's the internet. Hello. Wow. This is it wasn't cute. that hard. So, so <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's helpful to have gone to Stanford, yeah. Stanford Business School and work at Clorox and be in San Francisco. I mean, yes. all those things just, you know. Yes. And I think the bigger question would have been, how could you have avoided it? Mm, interesting. But of course, I was, you know, looking back, um, looking back, you just never knew, right? So I went to my business school reunion and ran into this guy, Gary Kremen. And Gary said he's starting a company called Electric Classifieds. But the first product, proof of concept, is supposed to be Match.com. And he wanted somebody who knew how to do some good marketing to run that. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. And so you're like, hmm, I know marketing. And were you interested in the in the concept already? Or were you like, well, I don't know if this is going to work. I like, oh, my God. I mean, in fact, the team was maybe three or four people. They had space in a basement off South Park here in San Francisco. I think 
one night I delivered pizzas, the other night I delivered Chinese food, just so I could hang out with the guys. Oh God, you're the only female. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, Gary had hired one, two younger women, but I don't think they had really started yet. Um, so, but I was trying to ingratiate myself mm -hmm. and it wasn't because I thought I'd make millions of dollars. I mean, I didn't really even know what stock, I, I mean, I kind of knew, obviously I went to business school, yeah. but I didn't really kind of know. Yeah. And, and I can't really say that my motivation was was the money. It was more about, yes, classifieds are going to make sense online. Mm. And why shouldn't personals? And that makes sense to me. And I had known people who had met people through newspaper personals, which were kind of sleazy at the time. But I really did. And, and yeah, no, I was in. I had to convince my, my then husband that it made sense to lose my relatively stable job with AAA. But right. AAA, it was so bureaucratic and it, it just wasn't going to be the long-term thing. So you had this exciting opportunity. You got to have a conversation with the hubs about, hey, I really want to go and do this crazy thing. And how did that conversation go? And then how did it go over there at Match? Yeah, no, I mean, I think he knew I was going to do it. Um, Regardless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it yeah. gave me a little bit of negotiating power because I don't know. I'm just guessing. And I think I said, Gary, Gary, my ex-husband was named Gary too. I said, and they knew each other. So I said, Gary's not going to let me take this job for less money. So, right. You know, so it was, um, it was a hell of an adventure. So I joined MASH at the end of 1994 we launched Match.com to the public in April of 1995. At that point, we were pretty clear of a few things. One, that we liked the name. We had a yeah. decent logo. We knew that we wanted to attract women, and we felt that that was the way to do it. It was free in 1995, I think throughout 1995. So, you know, that's 25 years ago, right? So I was in my early 30s. We put a lot of focus on getting people in the, in the Bay Area. It took off pretty quickly. But the thing is, is we didn't know how quickly because basically this was all brand new. <laughs> we had some competitors, but they were mostly more like newspaper classifieds. Mm -hmm. They didn't really have the matching component. We only asked about five questions. We didn't have photos. Okay. No photos? No photos. <laughs> So, so we asked questions like about your physical, life, like, you know, and, and I, I would say why one claim of fame I have here is, you know, the engineer comes into my office and, well, let me ask you, have you ever done any online dating? I actually met my husband on Tinder. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. And do they ask how much you weigh? Oh, I forget, because uh, it was like early days of Tinder, but probably. I feel like height no, and weight, no, maybe? No, I don't know. No, no, no. no. Nobody asked answer. how much. <laughs> and no, none of the dating sites ask how much you weigh. There were and lots of pictures of on Tinder. It's a bad comparison. There's right, like, okay. only pictures on Tinder. But back then <laughs> and even now, and I take credit for that because, you know, I was like, no, if we're serious about attracting women and making them feel comfortable, we're not going to make them put their weight. We could put body type. Okay, mm. so so the questions were very much about physical and what are you looking for? You know, a marriage, a man, a woman, you know, the very standard questions, only about five or six, because we wanted people to match. If we had too many questions and there weren't enough people on the site, how would you ever get any matches? What really struck me soon after we launched was how quickly people came back and said that they wanted a question about uh, marriage specifically. You know, are you looking for a long-term relationship or marriage? Mm -hmm. About intention about children and question about religion. And those pretty much told us that people were really looking for partners yeah. and long-term partners and that this was a serious kind of thing for them. It also was, we also got a lot of uh, feedback from our community that, that they were loving it and that they were dating more and not inclined to settle. 
that now that they found a way of meeting a lot of people, they were going to use it to meet a lot of people and potentially find the right one. Also, early days, um, you know, there were some jerks. Yeah. You know, as, as there always were. And we put a lot of focus. And I think this was consistent with us wanting to attract women. You know, our three words, our three brand words, and again, you know, this came from my background, were safe, anonymous, and fun. You know, anonymous has become less important now, but back then it was super important. But safe, you know, so we, I hired somebody who came from the dating industry and she put out guidelines on how to meet safely and pretty much the same kind of stuff that you'd hear now, mm-hmm. how much information to share and so on. Yeah. And then, of course, we had to have fun because this was fun. It was supposed to be fun. Yeah. And we tried to make it fun. Were there any, um, you know, matches made? Like oh, marriages at in the very beginning? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. And I, I haven't looked at the data. I'm sure somebody has it. But how many of these couples are, you know, how have they fared? Right. I don't, I don't really know. Um, one of my uh, favorite memories is this older couple came in. And I'm talking older, like in their 80s. Okay. Mm. Or I don't know. Maybe they were in their 70s. Well, the last time <laughs> he had been in San Francisco was VJ Day. Okay, so end end of the war in Japan. Uh, so what, nineteen forty five, right? Yeah. And they had that on match, and they came down into our offices, and we took them to the park. And I wish I had photos, oh. but I don't. Oh. I gave them some swag, but we were so successful that by nineteen ninety six, we were the lead online dating story for Valentine's Day. Still, we didn't even know how early we were, you know, and how big we were, which was kind of the problem. So Match.com, as I mentioned earlier, was supposed to be a proof concept for electric classifieds. Mm -hmm. And the money that was raised and the VCs were not in it for Match. They were in it to try and build a platform to get newspapers and others to put their classified advertising. Now, again, remember this is 1995. eBay really didn't come around till 96, 97. Craigslist started around that point, but was not the force that that is persisted at being. So they felt that was the bigger, more enterprise level opportunity. So the other reason for that is newspaper personals were really sleazy. So the way the business model was, you'd get a 900 number, you'd see an ad in the paper, mostly local newspapers and rags, you know, Village Voice or SF Weekly or whatever you have in L.A. And you'd call the 900 number and you'd get charged by the minute. And so there are some people who would put in things like, I'm into a gangbang. <laughs> that would generate a lot of phone calls. But weren't really real. And sometimes the newspapers put those in themselves to generate the 900 number income. (laughs) So personals, as they were called, as opposed to online dating or online matchmaking, which is what we adopted, were kind of considered sleazy and dangerous. And Mm -hmm. so the investors were not too excited about that. Then the third thing is Gary, who is still a very good friend of mine, Gary Kremen, He's kind of a wild guy. And long story short, he didn't last very long as CEO. And during the time I was running Match, I think I went through four or five CEOs who were all hired by the the investors or the board to build the the classified advertising thing. Mm. So Match did not get the resources. In fact, I had to prove that my advertising paid out. And guess what? I could prove it. But you will never do that now. You would never do that with a social network. Social networking as a phrase wasn't even something that we used. So it's great to be early and the dominant one in a market, but if you're too early, you know, and 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 so in the end, uh, the decision was made to sell Match.com to generate money for the online classified business. And by the way, newspapers never really got there. They just got killed by Craigslist and eBay and, right. and others, right? So we know yeah. how this, this story ended. 
I would say that I was pretty beat down all around, sort of a lack of resources from the electric classified team. So starved of both marketing money and resources, even though we were like cash flow positive. Can you believe that? We were cash flow positive. Wow. And I was still starved of resources, uh, even though we were the number one brand. And there were some people nipping at us, but you know, we kept a good focus on our brand value and what we were all about. We were executing really pretty well. I mean, I was doing some of the earliest uh, online advertising, cost per click ads. We had affiliate relationships with, oh, you'll laugh at these, GNN and Excite at Home and Alta Vista and Women's <laughs> Wire. Okay, these yeah. were brands that you would have known in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. I mean, we were executing, right? Yeah. But, and a couple of years ago, I was at a conference and I was on the plenary and everybody had to say something that they effed up. Mm-hmm. And I got to say in front of 2,000 people, I sold Match.com for less than $8 million. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and everybody knows that Match.com and all the brands, including Tinder, that it owns is worth billions of dollars. Later, it, I was reading that it was sold for $50 million, just a year. Yeah, it was, a, it was about a year later for about $70 million. And oh, wow. That, that should have had my name on it. It should have. Right. Yeah. Because it was a division of another company, I got a couple of bonuses. They were sizable for helping with the sale, but I didn't really get any anything going forward. And in fact, uh, Barry Diller, we sold it to Sendit, and then Sendit sold it to IAC, mm-hmm. um, and or what was what became IAC? I think at the time it was something else, Ticketmaster. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't really ever acknowledge the very early days of Match and how it got started. So me and some of the people kind of keep the flame. Yeah. I'll tell you, I pushed against it. And my biggest personal um, responsibility in all of this is had I, and this is important, had I had more support, not just in the company, but at home, and had I maybe felt a little bit more confident, a lot more confident, Mm-hmm. I should have raised the money and and been in charge of it when we sold it a year later. Yeah. And honestly, as a female entrepreneur, my number one thing is be confident. You can do it. Don't. And, and I don't know why. And I think partially I was exhausted. Right. So another piece of advice I would say is try and take care of yourself. But yeah, I, I let it go for way too little. Uh, it, it burns sometimes. It burns a lot less than it used to. And I meet people all the time who tell me either they met somebody on match or online dating made a big difference like it did for yeah. you. Yes. Or, you know, one time I was watching a television show with my then, you know, preteen son. And it was about how many relationships started online. And he looks at me and he says, Mom, you made that happen. <laughs> That's awesome. You did. So, so I take a lot of pride in, in that history and my little part of the early internet. And, you know, Match is one of the few brands uh, born in that time period that is still relevant now. So it maybe wasn't the financial success that you had hoped for and that it is, you know, today, but it is a success in, in terms of you really helped create an entirely new industry. Yeah, no, I, I take a lot of pride. Um, the other thing that I think is kind of my claim to fame, and this ties back to working at AAA, is we were a subscription model and one of the early ones. And yeah. one of the things that came out when we were discussing how to charge all the guys, I'll never forget, all the guys were in the room and they'd start every conversation. Well, I did this at this company and I did this at this company. It's like, oh, thank God, give me a half and break, right? <laughs> and the idea was to charge like 10 cents per contact. And I had just come from AAA, like no membership is the thing. And if we're serious about attracting women, that's how we should charge. Mm-hmm. And when we put on the business model, <clears throat> our percentage of women went up as soon as we started charging because it validated the guys. and. Up to now, you know, only recently is membership not as important. Anyway, that was my first big one. Awesome. So 
match, you know, sells and it's not a price that you're happy with. Did you stay with that company moving forward or were you on to the next chapter? No, I was on to the next one. They were going to move it to Texas and I wasn't willing to do that. Mm. Uh, in fact, that didn't happen, but at the time I didn't know that. And I would say I wasn't the best advocate for myself at that point. Mm-hmm. So I took a job with um, Women's Wire, which became women.com. Mm-hmm. Because I really thought content for women on the internet was going to be important. It would be an advertising business model, which we really didn't do a lot of at Match. Although we could have, but we, we didn't. And um, I wrote that through its IPO in 1999. But it was 1999, so we know what happened. Um, <laughs> it was fun. I had a good budget. We grew very quickly. We had really good investors. We took on... Uh, the online uh, presences for Hearst magazines, which included Redbook and Glamour and uh, Good Housekeeping, which are all great, great brands. Um, but we were perennially behind iVillage, which might not be a name that you remember, but they had a very, very um, outspoken CEO, and she just took New York and the media world by a storm, and they had a very big, big IPO. And by the time we IPO'd, it was not clearly the same. So I left women.com at the end of 1999. And I went over to a new company called Blue Light. And Blue Light was a joint venture with Kmart and Yahoo. And Kmart had the big relationship with Martha Stewart. And the whole idea was going to be create a free ISP for Kmart customers. And um, boy, that was quite the ride. But in the middle of that came the dot-com bust. Yahoo's shares went from, I don't know, back then $240. It was insane. I mean, what people don't remember was the boom before the bust. Okay, the boom was big. There was some team dynamics that were not great. How do you, how would you, what what advice would you have for anyone out there kind of dealing with these kind of team dynamics that are challenging at times? Do you have any advice for them or things that worked for you along the way? You know, it all usually has to go back to who's running the the drawing and whether or not they want these team dynamics to work out or not. Hmm. And whether or not they set up a culture that rewards teamwork or rewards the iconoclast or the the bigger voice in the room. And yeah. so to some extent, I think I was in a team where the leadership was not, was, was giving free reign, you know, like I, I think we recruited somebody and bought them a BMW. Oh I said, oh, come on. I mean, it was so extreme. I had, my marketing budget was a hundred million dollars. Wow. It's a nice okay. budget. But I had to spend, I had to spend a lot of it with Yahoo, which you know, it didn't pay out. I, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but can you imagine? I mean, that's how crazy it was. It's like, where's my BMW? Yeah, right. I wouldn't have even asked that. I mean, <laughs> I, w- I was still sort of in a responsible age. Um, that one came to an head the day my older son fell off a swing, broke his arm. I couldn't come early to the office because I had to take him to an orthopedic because his dad couldn't do everything. Yeah. And I came back to the office and Mark, the CEO, said, do you really want to be here? I said, no, I really don't want to be here. Oh, my gosh. He asked you that as if you had, you know, some kind of choice. Prior to that, there were a lot of things going on. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't happy. I mean, I had to deal with this this jerk. So. Right. So he could kind of feel it. So he just asked you straight up. (laughs) You're just like, you're right. I think I got paid pretty nicely. Yeah. I mean, I made a pretty big mistake on the way out. Um, Adweek was going to name me as you know, one of the top marketers. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't have told her. I said, well, I just got fired. Oh, no. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I should have gone back to Mark and said, you can fire me after this, but this will be good for the company. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you. Um, yeah. Well, needless to say, everything's crashed. Um, yeah. Not only did the dot-com crash happen in early aughts, but... Uh, Kmart and even Martha Stewart started to have some issues. So, um, so it's fine. 
uh, I left that, that was basically dead and um, licked my wounds a little bit, stayed at home for about a year, did a lot of consulting mm -hmm. and was looking around for my next gig. And I had some friends who were on the board of trustee. It's now called Trust Arc. At the time, it was a nonprofit industry association, best known for its trust mark, certified privacy. We basically made sure that privacy policies did what they said and said that they were going to do and also lived up to certain standards. And I took that job in August of 2001. At that point, everything was starting to crash and their business was crashing pretty badly. Okay. Yeah. My first board meeting was supposed to be on 9-11 of 2001. Didn't happen. But shortly after that, I basically had to fire a lot of people, really turn this whole thing around. And in, in 2001 and even 2002, I wasn't sure we were going to be able to make it. Mm -hmm. But here again, I think brand values really kind of helped, focused on making sure that we we're doing things the right way, did some early partnerships brought in some people to run sales that really had good sales and marketing skills and elevated some people who were really doing good work, who were not valued by the prior management. And some one of those people is still at start. So I'm always happy Joanne's there. So that always makes me happy. <laughs> uh, so it was tough to turn things around, but when you're in a down, and much like we are now, yeah. when you're in a down thing, you take risks, you make moves, because what do you really have to lose? Yeah. I mean, some people freeze, though. Some people are like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to try to ride this out and do nothing. <laughs> so I actually think that your perspective on that is is the way to do it. But I think a lot of people are very afraid to take risk in tough times. Yeah. And that's kind of the time when you really can take some risk because you're not going to really get second guessed. And you might as well try. So so that turned out okay. And I never thought I'd be with trustee for as long as I was. But from, again, a marketing and brand, you know, safety on internet, privacy, these were interesting. They still are. They're big challenges. So from an intellectual standpoint, I finally got some value from my public policy degree in undergrad. Nice. You know, there were things like spam, can spam. Uh, regulations. Then there was the whole thing about um, spyware on your computers. And we right. got very involved in that. And I really had some pretty good relationships with uh, some of our largest clients, which were big names like AT&T and Apple and all kinds. And I'm not saying these, I'm sure they're clients now. I just don't know. In yeah. any case, I, um, I stuck with it, and then I was going to, I was trying to figure out what to do. I had a opportunity to take some leave of absence in, um, I had jaw surgery in 2007. And I really kind of thought that if trustee couldn't grow, we were going to be left behind. And during that leave, where I really couldn't talk, right. <laughs> was jaw surgery. Yeah, Painful. I did spend some time thinking about what needed to happen and what did I want to happen. And I did interact with Gary, who used to work with me at Electric Classifieds and some other people. And I kind of decided that trustees go private and raise money. And this time I'd be the one to do that. All right. So, so I didn't do like, that match. Right. So you're going to make the same mistake again. There you right? go. Yeah. Now, the challenge was different because um, I had a board of directors who are mostly privacy lawyers who are not known for their risk appetites. And I actually had to kind of make it an ultimatum that if I don't get permission, and, and I really did have to get permission because I'd have to talk to our clients and I'd have to talk to investors and it would get back, right? So, whereas I do like the thing, you know, just do and ask, ask forgiveness later, I really didn't feel I could do that in this case. But I was able to make the case that, you know, where privacy was going as an issue was becoming more and more important, that without capital, and we were an underfunded nonprofit, 
I couldn't invest in technologies that would make us more relevant. For example, technologies to crawl websites or to really check things. You know, we were doing things mostly in an analog fashion, and, and I needed to do them in a digital way. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't really argue with that. And then when I talked to my bigger clients, they were all for it, but they weren't going to give me that kind of capital that you need to do to really grow a business. So nonetheless, I was able to to get the board to agree. They didn't believe I'd make the money or be able to raise some money. And back, it was 2007, right before the, the election in 2008. And I was going up and down Sand Hill Road. I hired a consultant, a friend of mine. He helped me. Even then, I felt like I had to have a guy in the room. Wow. And ultimately, we took an investment led by Teresa Gao. At the time, she was at Excel. And I'll never forget, I went to pitch her. She got it right away. And, you know, I said, look, we don't have any technology, but we have brand. And it goes, well, brand's the hard thing. (laughs) She gets it, yeah. So so she totally got it. And uh, it was interesting, though. There was another investor that was very interested. And I actually had two VCs fly out to D.C. to meet with my nonprofit board, which is hardly ever done. (laughs) I knew I wanted to work with Teresa. Uh, And it was only because the other female on the board, Christine Varney, who is very, very well-respected, was in the Clinton White House. Christine basically told them, you didn't think that Fran would raise some money. She's brought in good firms. She wants to work with this one. Let's just let that happen. Right. What's the holdup? What do you think it was? Uh, We were converting a nonprofit to a for-profit. And to do that, some proportion of the business had transitioned to a succeeding not-for-profit. And many of the people on the board were going to be involved in that. And they were looking to see if they could get, between these two VCs, more money into that to-be-determined nonprofit. Hmm. And that annoyed me because they never really believed that I was going to actually raise the money. And you did and it all I, yourself. <laughs> You're like, I get the money. What are you talking about? Go away. Yeah, at this point, I'm pretty confident I'm going to get the money. In fact, I yeah. want to engage them in a discussion about how to set up this new nonprofit. And I wanted the proceeds, which were going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars, to go to trustee is sponsoring this new research on right. social media and privacy or what have you. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I it stuck under my craw. And also, you know, for the most time that I was at trustee, I had mostly a male board. And one time they put me in the middle of the room and it was after strategic planning process. And each one of them went around the room and told me basically how it went for them. (laughs) What they weren't happy with? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think they would have done that to another guy. Right. And again, and after that was over, I was like, I'm never going to put up with this bullshit again. Right. Lesson like, learned. Yeah. Because there's no way they should have done that. That was absolutely. Right. Inappropriate. Inappropriate. Not the way you deal with. And, you know, I had grown, I had taken trustee from almost being bankrupt to by the time when we did the deal in 2008 with Excel, we did about $6 million in revenues. And for a nonprofit that was doing that organically, we had no investment. That was pretty damn good. Yeah, that's really the way we want to talk about timing. I signed that deal on July 3rd of 2008. Okay. Yeah. We did not know that that recession. (laughs) (laughs) More shit to hit the fan is coming. God, yeah. you know, Roller coaster. So, so yeah, so that was in um, 2008 and now I was CEO and I had an investor board and money in the bank raised $10 million, a series wow. A, right? That's a lot. That's great. That's a lot. You know, this is all good, right? Right. Well, you know, money can't buy you love, man. You know, <laughs> what, what do you need love for? 
Oh, no. I mean, I I honestly thought if we spent more money, we'd get more revenue, but that doesn't necessarily stand up when there's there's a global recession. And so that was rough. And partially because of that, and also because, and I don't think this was a mistake, but I should have thought about it a little bit more. I had already been at trustees something like eight years. I was not ready to say, hey, I'm in it for another 10 Right. Okay. Yeah. So 2009, we hired another CEO. I stepped back to be president and an executive chair. I had a lot of input into the process. And mm-hmm. the person who we chose, Chris Babel, had worked at Verisign. Chris Babel had worked at Verisign. So that was really very good, relevant experience and he had developed some skills that I really hadn't developed um, just because we're a different kind of company. Right. So Chris is still there and founders often have to take a step back. Chris brought really good relevant experience. I felt well valued and I stayed on for another couple of years and stayed on the board through about 2014, sometime in there. And because I did that deal, I did have the ownership stake that I never mm-hmm. had with Match. And so, of course, it behooved me to continue to be uh, supportive and, and do what I could to make the company successful. Right. Absolutely. You raised all that money, by the way. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, and I, I helped raise the next round. Mm-hmm. And um, as is more popular now than the early internet, I was able to sell some shares along the way. And Great. As it happened in 2011, got divorced. At that point, my two sons were either getting out of college or getting out of high school. So we had been living in Alameda, great place, but I decided to move to San Francisco. I was able to do that and bought a house here in Petrero Hill and stopped working full-time at trustee and decided that I was going to start to do some board work and some consulting and just kind of take a little bit of time off to think about my next move. Yeah. And while I was doing that, I Petrol Hill is still where Airbnb is headquartered or down the hill. So Airbnb was in the air and I bought this house, three stories, top floor, two bedrooms. My kids aren't around. So I started renting rooms on Airbnb, mostly just to see, because I'm an early adopter, you know, yeah. mostly just to see how does this work? You know, maybe it will offset the amount of money I'm spending on my wine memberships. <laughs> right. <laughs> Things like that, right? Yep. Well, immediately I started to make some money. Wow. And I, I was like, and, you know, again, I'm a marketer. So I, I believe pre-COVID, I was one of the top, host in all of San Francisco. <laughs> Even uh, Brian Chesky's um, family stayed with me. I will note that I did interview with them, and they told me they were looking for more of an up-and-comer. Oh, really? Yeah, so, and this was a number of years ago, so um, so I was in my early 50s. So and, you were and, overqualified for no, the job. I don't know, yeah. but that was the first time I kind of felt the, the sting of ageism, really. Mm. Interesting. Potentially, potentially with sexism. I, I think, you know. Yeah. You know, women get asked things that men don't, men don't get asked. Like I was asked, <laughs> and, and I, I know we all know that about things like pregnancy and children, things like that. But in a couple of different instances of raising money for BabyQuip or, or for other kinds of companies, like, well, why do you want to do this? As if you should be retiring like tomorrow? Yeah, and I've talked to men my age who are entrepreneurs to ask them, do you get asked this question? And they don't get asked that question. Right. And I got asked it frequently. It's like, well, okay, are you know what, am I not are am I too wealthy for you? I mean you Right. Know, right. It, it's kinda weird. Yeah. Anyway. It's like do I know too I much? Like maybe they're intimidated. Maybe they're just like, oh my gosh, I don't well, see maybe yeah. <laughs> in any case, I started to think about what are the changes that are gonna happen with this new way people are earning money because again this now we're talking 2014 15 16 even then uber and and lyft were fairly new to the scene i know it sounds and even apps were early. 
Yeah. Humans are the same. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. And so I was keeping my eye out for businesses that could kind of grow along with Airbnb, as well as new apps and things like that. And I was advising a bunch of startups, and I was working with Women's Startup Lab. And by the way, because of Airbnb, I bought two properties in Santa Fe, so I was doing a lot of this Airbnb stuff. I was getting involved with the Airbnb community here in San Francisco. And, you know, I was having a pretty good good time. But I was kind of thinking I'd really not be nice maybe to get a job in some healthcare. That might be a good thing. And I was just getting itchy again. Right. You know? Yep. And I met a gal from Santa Fe, as it happens, who started a baby gear rental. She went to Women's Startup Lab, which is like a pre-accelerator aimed mm-hmm. at women. And because she was Santa Fe, from Santa Fe, I was like, I have to be the gal from Santa Fe, you know? Right, right. And she outlined that she was doing a marketplace for baby gear rental. And she was really just in Santa Fe and, and maybe had, had a couple of things going on in a couple of other markets. But she was doing something like $30,000 in Santa Fe, which Santa Fe is a small town. And I was reflecting on the fact as a host, I had guests who wanted baby gear, but I didn't want to store a crib or a high chair or any of that stuff. Plus, I don't even know what people need at this point. Right, right. right. And honest to God, in that first meeting, I said, I think I should be your CEO. Nice. You now, just said she, it straight out. I, I just said it, you know, and... I think she was at the at that point, and I think she told me later she was both thrilled and scared to death, <laughs> which is right. appropriate. Yeah. Uh, so we kept the conversation going, and we formed Baby Quip in May of 2016, so just over four years ago. So I got to ask you because you, you in your story you've pointed to times, obviously very early on, that you know you were kind of lacking the support or the confidence in that time in your life, and then here you are saying, "I want to be your CEO. Let's make this happen." What I mean, obviously, it was like years of developing confidence and you know um, maybe some successes under your belt. I guess what would you say are those things that kind of built up that resiliency or confidence muscle? Like what advice would you have? Well, I, I think uh, probably raising that $10 million for a trustee was pretty amazing, especially since there was a lot of doubt. Yeah. But I really had a fair, fairly clear vision and kind of knew. And well, I didn't know. I knew it was the right thing to do. I was probably the only one who could probably execute it at that point in time. Ten million from Excel is back then. Huge you know, deal. Huge deal. Yep. And at that point, I think not just with myself, but with other friends, we reflected on our careers in the early aughts. I have a very good friend, Anna Zernosa. And one time I think we probably were both in our forties and we we're having some cocktails. And we were thinking, you know, it's over for us. The ship has sailed. <laughs> what ship has sailed? <laughs> you know, and, and then we then we got out of it, right? And and from that point on, we're like, no, we're just going to support each other. We're going to buck each other up when we need to be supported. Great. So I think a few things happened. I think over time, I reflected. I actually did a keynote speech in 2013, or it was 2013 or 14. No, it was probably 2014. Anyway about the tryouts that I had as an entrepreneur. I was able to, because of that reflection and reading and talking to other entrepreneurs, really see that we needed to do a much better job. And I think one of the things that changed, I mean, female entrepreneurship now is really supported. Even when I was first running trustee, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And clearly it wasn't when I was running Match. Right. Um, And what it comes down to, honestly, many times is... You need a support network because those things do happen. Yeah. The things are said and so on. But you need to have confidence in your conviction and have people around you. I mean, I really wanted a female board member and investor, which is one reason why I want to go with Excel. Mm-hmm. You know, so we need to do a better job supporting each other. There needs to be more money for women. Honestly, more women need to get very rich because. That's the only way the money will really 
flow down to to younger entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I thought Baby Quit was going to be a lot easier. And at this point, um, you know, it was, it was even hard with my experience to raise the money. I think Carrie, who was the founder in Santa Fe, Carrie Couillard, knew that I'd probably have the better chance of raising the money and, mm-hmm. and taking it to the next level. And she's still a shareholder, just like I was. She left the company in 2017, but she's all for us at this point, too. Yeah. Um, it's so hard to raise money. Marketplaces are hard. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, again, brand values made a big difference here. And we're very mm-hmm. focused on, you know, who we're helping, which is not just the families, but the moms who are delivering and now cleaning the gear. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit. Oh, yeah. So let me tell you. <laughs> so... Um, when we first met, I guess, was at launch. I had kicked off my Seed Invest campaign. Yeah, I saw you up there which, on stage in your pitch. Which was a new way, of, again, of, uh, of being an early adopter. I had a lot of people saying, what are you doing this? Yeah. And I was like, no, I think this is going to work, and I, I need to try it. So being an early adopter there. Early in March, I got my last check, and I raised 850000 in that round. So I was really happy. Mm-hmm. Thought... I'd have the money um, to go get to profitability. We filmed at Shark Tank in June of 2019, but finally we knew it was going to air in March of 2020. <laughs> okay, so I get my last the last check of fundraising. I schedule a party, fortunately, at my house to watch Shark Tank. And by the way. My son, Joe, joined, who's now a grown-up man, who was mm-hmm. a little boy when I did match. Yeah. He joins as CTO in 2017. Wow, and really? So he goes on Shark Tank with me. That's awesome. Which made it much more fun, right? So I'm yeah. doing this. And a mom's son, you don't see a mom's son uh, combination oh. that often, okay? Yeah. And, awesome. and he was a lot of fun. He did a great job, and, and he's done a great job. Uh, you know, I need you always need a CTO you can trust. Absolutely. And if it's a family Absolutely. member, that's excellent. Right. And, you know, sometimes we get questions about that. But mother, father, son and brother teams are all over the place. So it's like, come on, people. And it yeah. yeah. So we're celebrating that we're going to be on Shark Tank, have this party. Probably the last party most people I know went to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even that day, people were canceling. Right. Shark Tank goes on, tons of traffic, but by the next week, the the cancellations start to outpace the orders, Aww. and March was almost nothing. I still go down to Los Angeles because I'm going to buy the cleaning business to clean gear, those gross strollers and car seats from Tot Squad. So even in the midst of all this, as our sales are going down, 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 I go ahead and buy the Tot Squad business. <laughs> Los Angeles is shutting down around us. I mean, this is like yeah. mid April. At or the end of the month, I had this one investor who was in the sidelines that I was hoping would come in. But as things are happening, I'm increasingly thinking it's not right. going to come in. Right. And I pick up another $750,000 the last day of March. From the sideline guy? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. So totally. Because had that 750 not come in, I would have been a world of hurt. And who would have blamed them? You know? Right. Right. But it's an example of an investor who stuck by their commitment. That's excellent. Yeah. So excellent. Yes. Fundamentally, we got the PPP loan. We got another EIDL loan. We launched, we relaunched the cleaning business. Um, and we had business in, in June, July, and August, about half of what it was a year ago. But our biggest markets of uh, Hawaii and Florida and Southern California, like, you know, Disneyland's not even open yet. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean seriously. Things are still really are shut dead. down. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do think the impact of Shark Tank is going to make a difference. Um, our cost of acquisition has gone down dramatically. So I think that's probably the brand effect. You know, I feel bad for our providers. Many of them had 
you know, they keep the, the majority of an order because they own the gear and they deliver it and set it up. Many of them suffered and it's been a challenge keeping everybody focused and on point, but um, so far so good. We have about 600 providers. Some of them have paused because they aren't comfortable given the COVID threat or whatever other reasons if there's not enough business they're not as likely but mm -hmm. most of them are stuck with us or will come back with us once things turn around i think what's challenging for me is i honestly thought that turnaround would have been sooner yeah and that and it looks like it won't be for us until probably the spring at best oh yeah i think all of us have been hoping this covid stuff would be over in time for the holidays at least um and clearly that's not really happening Families do travel, and I'm yeah. glad that we're there for them. And the cleaning business, you know, we've already had a few hundred orders, and people are even more aware of the issues of cleanliness. And uh, I kept the team. We, we, you know, we reduced some things, but I actually hired a new team member. Great. So um, real, I never thought I'd get money from the government. So that was a happy surprise. Right. <laughs> when does that ever happen? <laughs> right. So, so all I can say Lee, is it, it's been an interesting life, you know? <laughs> yes, it certainly has. You have such an incredible story. Um, thank you so much for sharing everything. What other advice do you have for, you know, entrepreneurs out there that are looking to start a business? What's something that you wish you would have known before kind of jumping into entrepreneurship over and over? Look, if it's in your blood, you're going to do it and you're going to find a way. So you can't be afraid to to sort of pivot and test. Even if you start out with one thing, mm -hmm. you got to get to another. I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't totally understand what a challenge it is, but that's a, a feature, not a bug. I like that. Right? The challenges are a feature, not a bug. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, you know, I feel like the big difference between now and early in my career is all these accelerators and these crowdfunding things i think are really making an important uh difference i would probably not invest in a startup that didn't go through some kind of accelerator and so on interesting um you know cash is really important team and team dynamics are really critical and it's easy to get those wrong and it's hard to fix it yeah it's hard to fix it quickly you know Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to continue to to remember that. Uh, I think for women in particular, um, if you're going out to the female market, you embrace it. Don't apologize for it. You know. Yeah. But also, you have to have male champions because there's not enough money from female investors to be spread around all the startups. I'd also say, and the competition for money is tough because there's a lot of really good companies. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you end up doing all these pitch events, right? Yeah. And you listen to these other pitches and half the time I'm like, oh, I like that one. I like that one. Until a friend <laughs> told me, of course you do. You're an entrepreneur. Right. You like them all. <laughs> right. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I'm, I'm so good as an investor. Um, and then, you know, perseverance, right? Just just keeping at it. I mean, I have one investor who's a young mom, and she's like, you guys have to exist. So, yeah. you know, yeah. so stay with it. And so I reflect on her. It's like, okay, yeah. Absolutely. I think it's an excellent, excellent com concept. So I'm excited for things to get back to normal and, uh, you know, everybody traveling you, you again. Do you have children? I do not. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll be there when you do. <laughs> there you go. So being a founder involves an incredible amount of persistence. Obviously, you've gone through so many ups and downs. What keeps you going? Is there a thought process that keeps you on track and positive or motivated each day or an activity or routine? You know, I think that probably what keeps me motivated is fundamentally that people are depending on us, either our customers or our providers or my team. You know, one of the things I always like is when you build a company, you're providing jobs for people. Yep. And that that's a pretty awesome responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of fun. I mean, I love seeing people come to Babyquip or tell us their story or lead the reviews 
or do other things. I've learned so much. I mean, launching a business like Baby Clip in the mid-teens of the century versus launching Match, in many ways, they're very similar because sort of new marketplace businesses, new category, a lot of brand and sort of category building. Yep. But the tools of social media now and content marketing and all this stuff, it's, you know, it's so different. Yeah. Yeah. Yet the same. It's similar in a few ways. Absolutely. Well, Fran, do you have any other uh, advice you'd like to share? You know, I think I've touched on a few times today is the importance of brand values. Focus on brand. Thank you so much, Fran, for being on the show and sharing your incredible story. Really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you too, Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.